0: when I lived on the Gold Coast in Australia, there was a, a building. Uh, there's, there's a lot of skyscrapers there, and, and they're all hotels. But there was one particular building that I noticed one of the first times I went down there, and I, I said to, to my friend who was driving the car, I said, is it, is it me or is that building crooked? And it was, it was quite a, a tall building, probably 25 or 30 stories, and the building actually had a noticeable lean to it. And it was, it was actually a... a a, a tall, round building and, and probably inadvertently looked a little bit like the Leaning Tower of Pisa. But it's, it's interesting that that whole area is actually built on sand. And so it's extremely difficult for, for architects to actually make a building secure because, the, because it's, it's sand for, for, it goes, I don't know how deep it goes, but it, it goes deep, deep, deep into the ground. And so architects have divine all kinds of, of pilings to drive deep into the, the, the sand in hopes that the building will, will stay secure. But you can imagine that this, this building, which is largely hotels and, and hotel rooms and condos, doesn't really have a very good resale value on the units because who wants to live in a crooked building? But the most important part of the building is that which is under the ground. And in order for a building to be secure, it has to be planted on the rock. We have to make sure that we have the right cornerstone and the right foundation in order that the building will be sound, in order that the building will withstand the storms of life. That's true in, the, in Matthew 7 where, where Jesus spoke of, of the, the two men and, and one of them had built his, his house on sand and, and the, the whole Thing when the storm came, that the house was was completely obliterated. But the other man who had his house built on the rock, it withstood the storm. The same storm hit both houses, but only one stood. This is true in our individual lives, but it is also true in the church. The church is built on the cornerstone of Christ and the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, chapter 20. Give me a sec while I turn there. Ephesians 2, chapter 20. Sorry, Ephesians 2, verse 20. Going back to verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself, being the cornerstone, in whom the whole body, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so one of the the most important works of the Spirit is in equipping the saints for ministry. Not just, just pastors and other office holders in the church, but for the whole church. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each is given. And verse 11 says, The Spirit apportions to each one individually as He wills. Verse 18 says, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. And verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So these things refer to to how the church is built. But if you don't have the foundation right, if you don't have the, the cornerstone right, then the building is going to come crashing down. And so many churches that we see in our culture are crashing down because they do not understand what it means that the church is to be built on Christ and the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The message of of 1 Corinthians 12, in fact, the message of 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 is what happens in the context of local worship, what the church looks like, the local church looks like when it comes together together To worship. Chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians is often referred to as the love chapter. You'll often hear 1 Corinthians 13 preached at weddings. Well, that's fine, but but it's not love between a husband and wife that Paul is teaching about in 1 Corinthians 13. It's love, again, in the sense of corporate worship in the local church. And as Mark Dever points out, The reality is that not just chapter 13, but chapters 12, 13, and 14 are the love chapters together. The three of them are all love chapters. We need to understand that we have all been given spiritual gifts to build up the church out of love for God and for each other. And brothers and sisters, your spiritual gifts, your spiritual gifts are gifts to the church but the problem is many in the church don't even understand what their gifts are, what their gifts are, let, let alone what the gifts are in general. People have this, this kind of uh, this idea from the popular culture, or often from even misconceptions about what the spiritual gifts are. And so they, they really have no idea what their personal gifts are and how they're to be using their gifts in the church. And so we're going to be spending some time working Through the nature of the gifts and how they operate today. Now, this is a very complex issue, and it's not within the the scope of my my preaching to, to be able to go into all the details and implications of what this means. But as we go through this, pray that the Lord will help you to understand what the gifts are and what your spiritual gifts are. And ask godly people who know you well, ask the leadership of the church. Let's try to figure out what the best way is that you can use the gifts that God has given you for the building of His church here in this church family. There's a lot of overlap when it, when it comes to the spiritual gifts, and I'm, I'm going to be looking at them as they're listed in 1 Corinthians 12, and also Romans 12, 6 to 8, and Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter four eleven. but the list isn't going to be exhaustive. Again, I need to make clear that the actual gifts are not the focus of these chapters. This is more of a, of a topical series, as, a, as I guess a subset, as we look over these, these things. But Paul presumed an understanding of the gifts on the part of the Corinthians. He, the, he, he knew that they understand the gifts to a degree, but we can't say that today. And that's why I think it's, it's essential that we go through them. But even in Corinth, there were those who were were distorting the gifts and were misusing them, especially the extraordinary ones and those who who saw the abuses and then denied the gifts altogether. The church was dividing over the gifts that were supposed to be building the body together. But not much has really changed in 2,000 years. At the one end, we have extreme continuationists who believe that, that all of the gifts, as you see them in the New Testament, are still in operation in the church today. And at the other extreme, you have, have extreme continu- or, sorry, cessationists who believe that, that none of the gifts operate in that way today. And so on the one hand, people who have, 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 have pushed for the continuationist Position have, have, have led to all sorts of false doctrine. It's, it's led, to pe- led people to deny the sufficiency and the authority of Scripture and to, to add to or to undermine the word of God. And the word faith movement and the prosperity gospel and the Toronto blessing are just three appalling results. But then there's those who, who overreact to those things. And say that the the church doesn't give any gifts, or the Spirit doesn't give any gifts like that to the church anymore. And there's been gallons of ink and terabytes of data stored debating this issue from both sides of the argument and from everything in between. And churches and friends split over these issues. And so there's not a lot of love in the debate over the love chapters. And you're probably wondering where I stand on this issue. I said at the beginning in my sermon at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 12 that that I am charismatic. But I want to explain that all Christians are charismatic because the term charismatic comes from the Greek word charisma, which is often translated gift, which comes from the root charis, which means grace. So we are all recipients of the grace gift of salvation. But the question then remains, do the spiritual gifts of of 1 Corinthians 12 and so on exist today? Do they exist and operate in the church today? And that is a question that we need to address. Now, what I believe is going to become evident as I go on, but for now, let me just say that that essentially I'm doctrinally a continuationist. But experientially, a cessationist. And let me unpack that a little bit for you. Again, it'll become clear as I go on. When it comes to the extraordinary gifts, especially tongues and miracles and prophecy, I'm doctrinally a continuationist. I I don't see any text of Scripture that says the gifts have ceased. I don't see it there either directly or implied. Now the gifts will cease when the perfect comes, when Christ returns, but that hasn't happened yet, so we have to leave the door open for God to work in ways that He has in the past in our understanding, provided that we test everything by Scripture. I'm also a continuationist in the sense that, that I think that many of these gifts of, of teaching and, and administration and mercy and giving, and these things are still evident and still operational in the church today and whenever we actually do these things we are we're as 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 christians we are operating in the gifts of the holy spirit but i also need to say that when it comes to the extraordinary gifts experientially i'm a cessationist I've seen a lot that is claimed to be the work of the Holy Spirit and tongues and prophecies and so on, but I've never seen anything that the Bible would call the gifts of the Holy Spirit because it does not line up with what the Bible teaches on the subject. Now, just because I haven't seen it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. But again, because of of my understanding of sola scriptura being the authority, I can't rely on my experience. So I have to leave the door open. I have heard amazing and and well-documented stories about miraculous works of the Holy Spirit, but what is happening in the vast majority of churches does not line up with God's Word. Once again, it is the closed canon of Scripture alone that is sufficient and authoritative, and it is for that reason that it is vital that we understand that the church is built on the foundation of Christ Jesus, as, as we see in the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. There's one more thing that, that I want to, to point out before we dive in. When we talk about spiritual gifts, we're not talking about natural talent. For example, you might, you might have a, a be naturally talented as a musician— And maybe you're working really hard to develop your talents. But that can't be defined as a spiritual gift. But when those who are naturally talented serve the church in a way that the Holy Spirit empowers them to do so, then they are exercising a spiritual gift. So you think about the way that that we're served every Sunday by talented men and women in, in the area of music each Sunday and the way that they selflessly serve us with the talents that that God has given. And I I believe many of them have been given the the spiritual gift of service in order to be able to serve the church in the way that they do. But when somebody is, is, well, even unbelievers can be naturally talented when it comes to some of the things that the the, the Scriptures list as, as gifts of the Spirit, so that you can have an unbeliever who is a naturally talented Uh, administrator or or a or a teacher but you cannot say that they have a spiritual gift when it comes to those things because those things are used in the life of a believer for the building of the church What we're talking about here is when a christian is gifted by the holy spirit to fulfill a particular role in the church. And this involves a filling of the Holy Spirit that is subsequent to the baptism of the Holy Spirit and is experienced by all believers. Well, sorry, the the baptism of the Holy Spirit, rather, is is experienced by all believers. The filling is something subsequent. It is not something that that all believers have in that same sense as, as which we are baptized. So in one spirit we're all baptized into one body, 1 Corinthians 12:13, but we are not all filled by the spirit in the same way. Okay, so let's get started. Again, there's there's a lot of gifts, but but this week I'm going to to go into the three offices as they're outlined in 1 Corinthians 12:28. Because this is foundational to our understanding. Apostles and prophets and teachers. Well, the first two offices no longer exist. But it's important that we understand what they are and how they operated in order that we have the foundation right. So we're not building a crooked house. As Tim Challey's once said in a, in a blog on the subject, that although not all spiritual gifts are offices, all offices are gifts to the church. And so the, the apostles and the prophets are gifts to the church, and teachers to this day are, are gifts to the church. There is a, a distinction between the action and the office, as we're going to see. I believe that there's only only two offices that actually continue in the church, that of elder and deacon. Those are the only two offices that, that Scripture outlines as, as still existing, and the office of, of teacher is, is under the auspices of the office of elder. And so Paul says that, that God has appointed in the church first apostles. So let's go there first. Apostles. This is, this is also in the list of, uh, of Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. We, we read that, that, And he gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Apostles are gifts to the church, and they served the whole church universally in that they provided the foundation of the church through their lives and their teaching. Repeatedly, Paul refers to himself as one who is called to be an apostle. In fact, that's just how he begins First 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1.1. 1, 1. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And the Greek word there is apostolos. In older, older Greek, it originally referred to, to a naval expedition, but it gradually became to mean one who is sent out or a messenger. And it eventually became, came to refer to the office of the apostle. Well, sometimes in Scripture, that, that word apostolos still refers to those who are sent out. Titus in, in 2 Corinthians 8.23 and Epaphroditus in Philippians 2.25 are, are, are both referred to in the Greek apostolos, but they do not hold the office of the apostle. And that's why most English Bibles actually translate the word messengers. Messengers, that those who have been, have been sent out with the message of the gospel. And so, so in one sense, we are all apostles, small a apostles, and that we are, we are all sent out with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's nobody here who holds the office of the apostle because that was limited to the apostolic age, and their role was completed when the canon of Scripture was closed. When John died in in 80, 90, the office of the apostle died with him. So apostles, in, in the sense of, in the, in the small a sense, refer to, to, to who they are in the same way that, that a deacon can simply refer to a servant or to a ministerial office. And so we're all called to be servants, but certain individuals are recognized by the church as deacons. And similarly, people are still sent out from the church as missionaries and evangelists, but they are not properly called apostles in this sense. And the scriptures lay down the qualifications for an apostle. They, they had to be a personal witness to Christ incarnate. We see that in Acts 1, and 22, when the disciples were looking for a replacement for Judas. They needed somebody who had been a witness to the risen Christ. They were personally commissioned by Christ. We see that in the Great Commission in, in Matthew 28, and, and we just saw it in, in 1 Corinthians 1.1. They also wrote Scripture in 2 Peter 1.20 and 21. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The office of the apostle was also attested to by miracles. Throughout the scriptures, we see miracle after miracle uh, done by the apostles under the, the, under the headship of Christ. And when, So when Christ sent the, the apostles out in Matthew chapter 10, he gave them the ability to cast out demons and heal people and to perform miracles. When we think, think about these things and we ask, okay, well then how can Paul... Be an apostle. Well, Paul refers to himself as one who is untimely born. That, that, but Paul was a personal witness to Christ incarnate. We see that in Acts chapter 9, where, where Jesus himself appeared to Paul. And we also see in Galatians 1:12 and other places that, that he was taught directly by Christ. We also have, have Paul commissioned by Christ. There again in, in 1 Corinthians 1.1 1, 1 and Galatians 1.1 1, 1 and Romans 1.1, 1, 1, that Paul was directly commissioned by Christ as an apostle. We also see that, that Paul wrote Scripture. In fact, Peter refers to the, the, the things that, that Paul wrote as Scripture in 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. So Paul was an apostle. Well, who then were the apostles? Well, well the, it, it was a limited number of, of people, a limited group, but it extended beyond just the 12. There were more than just those, those well, I guess the, the 11, since the, the Judas was, was really a false apostle. But it went beyond just the, the 12 original disciples of Christ. What was the role then of the apostles? Well, they established churches. In Romans 15, 17 to 20, they exposed error, Galatians 1, 6 to 9. They defended the truth of the gospel, Philippians 1, 7 and 17. Well, men can still be, be sent out to, to perform these functions to this day, but they are not properly called apostles because they cannot possibly meet the biblical qualifications. And so the office of the apostle then no longer exists as it did with the first apostles. Not even so-called apostolic churches like the Assemblies of God believe that the office continues in the same form that it did in the first century. In an official statement by the General Presbytery of the Assemblies of God, we read that, that it is clear that while the apostles were established leaders in the early church, there was no provision for the replacement or continuation. So in that sense, there's even a degree of cessationism even in many Pentecostal churches. But it is on the the issue of the cessation of the the office of the apostle that much of the argument for the cessationist hangs. Appeal is made to the fact that the office ceased and then so have the associated gifts, especially that of, of prophecy, and that's that's what, what they would refer to Ephesians 2.20 that, that I read earlier, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself, as the cornerstone. And since the office of the apostle has served its purpose, that there is no longer any office of the apostle. And then they would argue also that, there, there, that prophecy has also ceased with the closing of the canon of Scripture. Because they say that, that to if if there's a a prophecy in this sense, then what you're doing is you're undermining the sufficiency and the authority of Scripture because you're adding to the Word of God. Now, in that sense, I would strongly agree with the cessationalist argument. Prophecy has ceased when it comes to the authoritative, thus says the Lord. But the question that remains, is there, is, that, is there another sense in which prophecy has not ceased? So let's look at that second office. Verse 2, Prophets, or point 2, Prophets. In the same way as the office of the apostle has ceased, I do not believe the office of the prophet continues in the way that it did prior to the closing of the canon of Scripture. And, and to that I would make the argument that the cessationists make in, in Ephesians 2.20. That in that sense, in the, in, the, the, in the speaking of the very words of God, the office of the apostle and the prophet has ceased because the canon of Scripture is closed. There is no more revelation with the authority that we find in Scripture. And anyone who says otherwise is proclaiming heresy. There are 66 books in the Bible. And if we were able to have clearly an authoritative word from the Lord, then we would have to add to the Scriptures. Every time somebody opened their mouth, we'd say, oh, oh there's a 67th book. But clearly that is not the case. Well, let's look then at, the, at, the, the, at prophesying the Old Testament. Well, in the Old Testament, the stakes for prophets were extremely high. Deuteronomy 18.20, but the prophet who presumes to, weak a, to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of one of the other gods, that same prophet shall die. That was the penalty For saying, thus says the Lord, and being wrong. When the standard was also high, if you say in your heart, then how shall we know the way that the, the, the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So if a prophet got anything wrong, he was a false prophet and he was to be stoned. The same standard is applied to the prophets who wrote the New Testament. They're writing the very words of God. And if they said anything in error, then these men would have been false prophets. But they weren't. We, we talked about this when we looked at scripture a couple of weeks ago, that that the, the the that there's verbal plenary inspiration. These men spoke the very words of God. Well then who were the, the prophets of the New Testament? They're apostles. They're the apostles. But we need to acknowledge that, that not all of those who wrote the scriptures were apostles. For example, Mark and Luke were not apostles. They were, however, prophets in the sense that they spoke the very words of God, going back to to 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, where, where no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So there is then a distinction when Peter refers to a prophecy of Scripture. It is on a completely different level as inerrant and authoritative. There were prophets in the New Testament and the Old Testament, for that matter, who didn't write Scripture. In 2 Corinthians 11, 4 and 5, Paul speaks of women who prophesy, but clearly they don't hold the office of the prophet. We also have the four daughters of Philip, the evangelist, in Acts 21, 9. And in Acts 21, verses 10 to 14, we have the prophet Agabus who prophesied that Paul would would be bound by the Jews at Jerusalem. But again, extra-biblical prophecies were not considered on par in inerrancy and authority with Scripture. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 to 21, Paul tells the Thessalonians, Do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good. This obviously can't hold fast to, sorry, this obviously can't refer to Scripture because despising Scripture would have received a much stronger admonition. Furthermore, they're told to test everything. Well, there's no need to test God's Word because it is God's Word. God's Word alone is sufficient and authoritative to test everything. Similarly, in the, the immediate context of a passage this morning, Paul says to the Corinthians, let, let, in, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 14, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. Well, if what they're saying is on par with Scripture, then there's no need to test it. But once again, Scripture alone is the measure by which these prophecies are to be regarded. So what then is prophecy today? Well, there are those who, in, in contradiction to the passages that I've just mentioned, put, put modern prophecy on par with with and, and practically above God's word. Well, for example, in discussion with a neighbor about concerns that I had with, with women teaching men in his church, I, I walk with him through some key scriptures on the subject. And I, I lent him a book. I still need to get back. I lent him a book called 50 Crucial Questions on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And he rejected the whole thing, saying that, well, the Spirit says otherwise. Do you understand what he's saying there? He says that the Holy Spirit is saying something that runs contradictory to Scripture. And that's blasphemy. I didn't use those words with him, but I did express my concerns and, and told them we had no basis for conversation in, the, in the, this area if you could ever think that the Holy Spirit could contradict Scripture. Because what you have then is you have something subjective that is overlaid over the Scriptures. And you don't have the, the, the prophecies being interpreted by Scripture. You have, you have the, the prophecies interpreting Scripture. It is completely upside down and it has led to all kinds of heresy in the church today. When you look at the ministries of men like Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland, their ministries are the result of just that heresy. So, what is taking place in the city under the banner of prophecy is not prophecy in the sense that Paul is talking about here. Almost all so called prophecy that takes place in churches today is not the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, those are strong words, but but I I have a reason for saying that. I'm saying that because it does not line up with Scripture, because the practice in these churches does not line up with the way that God says that prophecy is to be used. I'm going to talk a lot more about that when we get to 1 Corinthians 14. I've heard of young of a young man approaching a young woman saying, well, saying that that God told me that we're going to get married. And to which the woman replied, well, he never told me. These sorts of things happen. This is spiritual abuse. I've witnessed a lot of this abuse that that takes place under the guise of prophecy. I I was part of a group that that I can't even rightly call a church that sought to control people through subjective prophecies and so-called words from the Lord. And and most people in that group have proved to be non Christians by their choices. But we need to be careful here because you can't make the case for cessationism based on abuses. Because again, we have to go back to the fact that Scripture alone is our authority. I can't stress this enough. Scripture alone is sufficient and authoritative, and if scriptures don't close the door, then the door isn't closed. We need to allow for the possibility of the Lord bringing revelation, and that's the very word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 14.30, of Lord bringing revelation to mind so that a person has a message from the Lord. But it cannot ever be prefaced with the words thus saith the Lord, because that would be an attack once again on the sufficiency and the authority of Scripture. Nor again do people hear from God in an audible voice. If people are hearing an audible voice from God in their head, you can be sure that it is not the Holy Spirit. God speaks in His Word. And so we need to think about what how do we how do we chart this? What what is this going to look like in the body of our church family? Well, there's one sense, and I, and I believe much of, of prophecy is is not really a a foretelling, but actually a forthtelling of God's word. There's a, a powerful proclamation of the word of God. And, and Spurgeon, for example, who was was considered by many to be a cessationist, tells the story of, of how he received a visit from an elderly minister with a letter in his hand. The, the letter was from the man's son who, had, who had, had previously made a profession of religion but had strayed from it. And Spurgeon relays how he read the young man's letter. The young man wrote, I went to hear Mr. Spurgeon and I have not the slightest doubt but that it has had an influence on my whole life. His sermon was, was entitled or was dealing with he is, is as a root out of a dry ground, that Christ is a root out of dry ground. The sermon was divided into four parts, and the, the, po- the point which lasted longest was that which he said that God had made Christ to grow up like a root out of the dry ground. He went on for 25 minutes. And then the young man gave an opinion of my style, which I won't read to you, But what surprised me most was that out of five or 6,000 people, he fastened his eyes on me, though I was in the farthest gallery, and suddenly he shouted out these words. There's that wild daredevil Tom. God means to save him, and he will be a comfort to his father in his old age. Now, Spurgeon had never met Tom. He had no idea who Tom was. But the old man said, and so he is. His name is Tom, and he has become a comfort to me in my old age. And so the letter went on. I thought he was going to say my name. I thought he was, I trembled, lest the people should know that my name is Tom. How did Spurgeon know that Tom was there in that service? I have no other explanation for it other than that it was a work of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> but we need, again, to be so careful here. Because Spurgeon, as, as as amazing a preacher as he was, Spurgeon and his experience are not authoritative for us. We need to rely on the Scripture and the Scripture alone. And, and I fear that that is one of the, the greatest problems that, that has, has resulted from from the, this whole movement that is founded on these, these extraordinary gifts is because it, it is detracted and distracted from the sufficiency of the gospel, from the sufficiency of Scripture. But Spurgeon wasn't the only one who had had this experience. Hear what, what Puritan Richard Baxter had to say. It is certain that God will make no new scripture or inspired word as an infallible universal rule for the the exposition of the word already written. It is possible that God may make new revelations to particular persons about their particular duties, events, in subordination to the scripture, for he has not told us that he will never do such a thing. So these men are saying that there is a sense in which in the course of preaching, Often in the course of preaching, a man will speak powerfully in proclamation, not so much of a, as, a, as a foretelling, but as a forthtelling of God's Word. And we, and we need to look at what the Scriptures say about this and submit our understanding and our practice to that. But now with the time that we have left, let's, let's look at the third office, that of teacher, the one that it still exists to this day. A teacher is one who explains the scriptures and applies them to people's lives. And teaching is the central ministry of the church. It's the reason why we are here today. Once again, not all who teach hold the office of teacher that Paul is listing here. Many of us perform a teaching role in the church, but we cannot all be said to be holding the office of teacher. And what's the difference here between, between teaching and prophecy? Well, I think Anthony Thistleton does a good job of distinguishing. He says, Prophets perform speech acts of announcement, proclamation, judgment, challenge, comfort, support, or encouragement, whereas teachers perform speech acts of transmission, communicative explanation, interpretation of texts, ex- establishment of creeds, exposition of meaning and implication, and more cognitive, less temporally applied communicative, communicative acts. As Wayne Grudem explains, teaching has more authority than any so-called modern prophecy because prophecies are subject to the authoritative teaching of Scripture. So again, I, I believe that the office of the teacher as listed here still exists and overlaps to a large degree with the pastoral office. Without that of bishops and elders and overseers, they're, they're terms that the Scripture uses interchangeably to refer to the same office. An ability to teach, though, is a distinguishing mark of an elder. 1 Timothy 3 and, and Titus 1 make that clear. All elders are to be able to teach, but it is not necessarily the focus of their ministry. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Well, maybe you're here this morning uh, with perceiving that that you have the gift of teaching. If you're right, praise God. We need more teachers. But we, we need to realize that it's the church that recognizes the gift of teaching and the biblical qualification and ordains men into this office. If you have those gifts and qualifications, they will be recognized. That's, that's why we, we, a few months ago, we tried to start to bring men together to, to study hermeneutics in order to identify where those gifts exist in our body. Now that's been, been put on hold for a minute as, as sadly interest really waned, but, but this is something we're going to come back and revisit again. we as a church need to be very careful about who teaches. That's why we're going through our statement of faith. If, if it's, it's vital that you hold to our statement of, fa- statement of faith without, without reservation to be a member, let alone to be a teacher in the church. I've learned that lesson the hard way. Sadly, a few times. We need to be very careful about who teaches. We're going to be examining the qualifications in more detail on the Wednesday evening Bible studies over the, the next few weeks. We're going to be bringing David Vogt, we hope, forward as an elder. And, and David does not take these things lightly. It's actually, he's requested that we study these things in order that the church can make an informed decision. He doesn't take his role lightly. James warns, warns in James 3.1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. We're all judged by the same standard, but teachers are judged with greater strictness. And the ability to teach is, is, of course, a gift to the church because the church needs to be able to understand and to apply God's Word correctly. But the ability to teach... In this sense is also a gift to the individual because no one can rightly understand or teach the proper application of scripture unless God empowers him to do so. But even if one were able to teach correct doctrine, unless the Holy Spirit empowers his preaching to work in the hearts of his listeners, he will produce no lasting it will produce no lasting fruit in their lives. Just had some real really powerful quotes that, that, that talked about, about this. It's it's often referred to as, as unction, when the when the Holy Spirit particularly moves in a preacher so that the word of God is communicated in a in a powerfully clear way, and that there is a, a an understanding of in the in the body and there is a, a, a an appreciation of and a a turning to the things of God. Al Martin spoke of this, that he said, My brother, if you have tasted this reality, you will never be satisfied with anything less again. Some call it unction, some call it liberty, and some say that they were especially helped in preaching. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, The Holy Spirit enables Christians by giving them what is called New Testament unction. He gives them anointing, understanding, freedom and clarity of speech and authority. He says that, that many He's, well, one quotation serves to, to sum it all up well. It's in the first letter to the church in Thessalonica where Paul said in, in chapter 1, verse 5, Our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. Paul's saying there, I did the speaking, but it was not I. I was used. I listened to, uh, to a, a short... Um, clip from, from Al Mohler's Ask Anything weekend on, uh, yesterday afternoon and, and from, from last year. And, and a young man who was, was a young preacher asked, well, how can, how can a preacher, how can a young preacher receive compliments about his preaching? And Dr. Mohler gave, gave a good answer, but, but I, I probably would have taken it a different direction. When you realize that the ability to preach is entirely a gift when it doesn't come from you, when it is God who is doing it. Then God alone gets the glory. And then so you can, you can say when you receive a compliment, well, not just for, for teaching, but, but for any time you operate in your spiritual gift, you can say from your heart, praise the Lord, because you know that it is entirely from the Lord, that it is God who did it. And so God gets the glory. Glory. Al Baker, who wrote in an article for Banner of Truth, says, I I love this, it says, like a hammer that shatters rock, preaching in the Spirit shatters people's unbelief, creating new life in them, sanctifying them, converting them. Such preaching, preaching is drenched with the Holy Spirit. Such preaching comes with a supernatural authority and unction. People listening and watching know that they're being dealt with by God, it brings conviction of sin, which brings change. Sinners will not sit long under this kind of preaching without being convicted. their discomfort will increase. they will either leave because they can no longer bear the discomfort or they'll run to Jesus for refuge in repentance and salvation. this morning we, we've talked a lot about about three foundational offices for the church again the first two no longer exist we are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and so the teaching ministry of this church is built on that and if if we if i stray from that one iota there will be a lean that will start to be happening in the church it might be imperceptible at first but it will be there If we we do not come back to the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, the house will not stand. As we consider next week and and onwards, as we consider what the spiritual gifts are and how the church is to be built, let us not stray one iota from that foundation.